This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're tuned into Channel Africa, always giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. My name is Samora Mangesi, and I'm in studio with Jwalani Tulo, uh, Tracy Boomgaard, as well as Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Cameroon hands huge consignments of food aid, security and communica- uh, communication gadgets to militias fighting Boko Haram uh, on its northern border in Nigeria. The Congolese president, Denis Sassou Nguesso, has called for stronger health systems, concrete action on con- counterfeit medicine and universal access to health care. In economics, Seychelles and the European Union have begun the first round of negotiations for a new sustainable fisheries partnership agreement and protocol. And lastly, in sport, South Africa among the 10 countries which will be bidding to host the Women's Football Cup uh, World Cup in 2023. The time is 17.01 Central African time. Let's cross over to the news desk. Here's Jwalani Tulo with your latest news bulletin. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. Burkina Faso's military says extremists have killed at least 10 soldiers in the country's north. In a statement, the military says several more soldiers were wounded in Monday's attack in Sum province near Mali's border. The military also says an air and land operation has been launched in reaction to the attack. Violence by Islamic extremists have been increasing in Burkina Faso's north and east. Attacks have already killed hundreds and thousands have fled the violence in the country. Ten Cameroonian separatists have been handed life sentences by a military court sitting in the capital Yaoundé. The conflicts included the leader of the most known separatist group, the Southern Cameroon National Council, Sisuku Ayuk Tabe. They were arrested in January last year at a hotel in the Nigerian capital Abuja and were subsequently deported to Cameroon. In November 2017, an international arrest warrant for Tabe and over a dozen others were issued. The military court convicted them on various charges including rebellion. Members of the former interim board at South Africa's public broadcaster will take the special investigating unit's report on the SABC security tender on review. Kaisile Kweyama, Phoebe Potrita Kubule, Matata Zedu, Krishnaidu and John Mattison held a media briefing in Santin, Johannesburg, where they outlined their plans to challenge the report, which they said was fundamentally flawed. The report found that while there was no corruption, there were irregularities in the awarding of a tender worth $12 million to Mafuku Security, which led to the SABC losing money. The report wants the former interim board members to be declared delinquent. Angela Bolowana reports. The former interim board says they are shocked by the findings contained in the SIU report. Addressing the media, the board said they were the ones spending sleepless nights and making sacrifices to save the SABC. They also pointed out that they saved the institution half a billion rand while they held the fort between April and September in 2017. The board says the SIU made so many mistakes on a host of issues, including basic things such as who reported the matter. Frustration is mounting among the farming communities and soldiers patrolling the border area between South Africa and Zimbabwe near Musina in the Limpopo province. They are concerned that the phase forming the border between the two countries has collapsed and illegal migrants are crossing the border easily. These farm workers and farmers say the absence of a fence is a security concern. Since the fence was damaged during the floods, it is free for all. People come in and out as the peace. People enter freely and come and commit crime. Let them fix the fence. Maybe it will help. Soldiers themselves cannot do anything. You cannot patrol something that does not exist. And finally, Russia has told an international watchdog that a nuclear accident that happened earlier this month is none of its business and that Moscow is not obliged to hand over radiation data. Moscow initially downplayed the seriousness of the accident, but now acknowledges that five people were killed at the facility in Russia's northwest. The BBC's Jonathan McManus has the story. 
The explosion on August the 8th is believed by many Western analysts to have been caused by an accident during the testing of a nuclear-powered cruise missile. Four nuclear monitoring sites in Russia have now gone silent, with Russian officials telling the International Monitoring Organization that there were communication and network issues. This has only heightened suspicion that Russia is seeking to control the release of information, not so much about the safety implications of the incident, but to provide as few clues as possible as to the nature of the weapon's power source. The Russian president, Vladimir Putin, has insisted that there is no safety threat and no rise in radiation levels. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Cholani Tulo. This is Africa Digest. Starting off in Cameroon, where there has been a handing over of huge consignments of food aid, security and communication gadgets to militias fighting Boko Haram terrorists on its northern border with Nigeria after bloody weeks of attacks in which 32 of the vigilantes and civilians were killed. The government says they have intelligence The fighters may be attacking schools that were reopened in border areas as children return for studies. Moki Kinzeka reports from Kosiri on Cameroon's border with Nigeria. 20-year-old cattle rancher Hussein Abu still suffers from pain in his abdomen and forehead from when he fell into a river while hiding from attacking Boko Haram fighters on August 3. Abu says he and his father were part of the militia on duty in Kuseri that day. He says his father was killed in the attack alongside four other vigilante group members. Abu says if his father were alive, he should have been able to ensure his young ones would have education, food and clothing, and he should have had a means to take care of his failing health and that of his mother. He says he wants the state to help him. The government appears to be listening. The militias are defending areas from which the military has withdrawn. Authorities in Cameroon are giving huge consignments of food, money and equipment to militias fighting Boko Haram on the country's northern border with Nigeria. Authorities have given a half million dollars worth of food to Kuseri and an unspecified amount of money. They pledged to give a million dollars to militias in other areas. The militias are defending areas from which the military has withdrawn, presumably to fight separatists in Cameroon's English-speaking areas. Officials say the self-defense groups are needed to stop the fighters who infiltrate through porous borders and hide in the communities. After years of battling the armies of Nigeria, Cameroon and Chad, Boko Haram has lost much of its military strength but still attacks villages in northern Cameroon with machetes, long knives and locally made guns. 32 militia men and civilians have been killed in less than a month. Mijiyawa Bakari, governor of Cameroon's far north region, says the terrorists are now targeting militia men because they are an impediment to small-scale operations like burning schools and markets. À la veille de la rentrée scolaire, qui pointe derrière à l'horizon, le chef d'État a pensé aux différents membres du comité de vigilance qui sont aussi des parents. He says Cameroon President Paul Biya sent him to encourage each and every member of local militia groups who have abandoned their farms, ranches and businesses to be steadfast in collaborating with the military to defend Cameroon from Boko Haram terrorists. He says all those who have died in the process will be forever remembered by the nation they paid an ultimate price to save. Mais ça n'a pas empêché que ceux qui sont vivants poursuivent leur travail aux côtés de nos forces de sécurité et de défense. Aliou Seni, spokesperson of the militias in Kuseri, says the gifts motivate them to work, especially 
given that schools which have been closed for several years are preparing to reopen on September 3. C'est un sentiment de satisfaction, de conviction et d'assurance que l'État est à nos côtés. Seni says although they need regular and not impromptu assistance when crises deepen, the gifts from President Paul Biya have assured them of the state's support for their efforts against Boko Haram and they are now more than ever determined to fight the terrorists, even if it means paying the ultimate price to free Cameroon and its people. Cameroon authorities have warned that Boko Haram may be planning other raids that may affect school-going children and their teachers. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Kuseri, northern Cameroon. As the State Capture Commission of Inquiry completes its first year since its establishment, we reflect on the work of the Commission with regards to allegations of fraud and corruption at ESCOM and Transnet. The Commission was tasked with probing whether public officials or employees of any state-owned entities, SOEs, breached or violated the Constitution or any relevant ethical code legislation by facilitating the unlawful awarding of tenders to benefit the Gupta family, individuals or corporate entity doing business with organs of state, among other things. Evidence submitted by witnesses appearing before the Commission so far points to impropriety on the other part of officials in the awarding of contracts at ESCOM and Transnet. Naledi Ngobo reports. Witnesses have taken the commission through a sequence of events revealing the deliberate flouting of procurement processes and governance systems in the awarding of tenders at state-owned entities. Transnet Chairperson Popo Mulefe named former Transnet executives Brian Mulefe, Siabonga Gama and Anuj Singh as the architects and facilitators of state capture at Transnet. He said that money which is still to be recovered in relation to Transnet's 1064 locomotives tender is in the region of 16 billion rand. He said that the board has instituted civil claims against Gupta-linked advisory firms, regiments and trillion capital amounting to 189 million rand and 140 million rand respectively. Three key protagonists, three actors, we call them the architects and the implementers of the capture of the state. And these were Mr. Brian Molefe, uh, Mr. Anoj Singh and Mr. Siabonga Kama. Uh, the records and exhibits will show that they signed for some of these big and irregular contracts, including deviations or confinement. Transnet's acting group CEO Mohamed Mohamedi said that former Transnet group CEO Brian Molefe requested the board to approve the irregular and unwarranted increase in payments for the major locomotives acquisition from 38 billion rand to 54 billion rand. He said that China South Rail met with Brian Molefe and communicated with Transnet's former supply chain officer Gary Peter before the procurement process of the locomotives had commenced. If Mr. Molefe and Mr. Peter were wanting to engage with bidders, then all bidders should have been afforded that equal opportunity. We're not sure what the conversations were in those meetings. Uh, we're not sure what the discussions were. However, it is certain that there seems to be preferential treatment given to one bidder over the other. Chairperson of the ESCOM board, Jabu Mabuza, gave evidence that demonstrated how ESCOM executives shared confidential information with ESCOM-linked companies and associates. He said that the purpose of this was to assist the Guptas and their associates to unfairly seize commercial opportunities at ESCOM. Mabuza said that former ESCOM acting chief executive Matela Gogo shared classified information which led to the appointment of consultancy agency McKenzie for the top engineers program at it would then appear to me that the executives that were in office then uh, between March and July 2015, this our own summation, take this document and go to McKenzie and say, McKenzie, through Mr. Issa, McKenzie, you can get this job, but you'll have to do something else. You can get this job, this is what it would, we will pay you, but uh, at a point you'll have to do something else. 
and uh, as I will demonstrate in my submission as I contextualize this, that this something else was will appoint trillion. ESCOM Treasurer Andre Pile said that there was an increased number of McKenzie and Trillion consultants at ESCOM following the arrival of ESCOM Chief Executive Brian Mulefe and former Chief Financial Officer Anuj Singh. Pile said that Singh tried to impose Gupta-linked company Trillion Capital on a number of transactions between ESCOM and potential funders. We identified this particular funding um, and... <laughs> It was clear that the intention was to, to incorporate or impose trillion onto this transaction. Um, uh, this transaction particularly, Chair, was also for around uh, $2 billion um, at the time, around, amounting to 30 billion rand. And um, Goldman Sachs made it clear to Mr. Singh that they would not proceed with um, collaborating or um, partnering with trillion with transactions of this nature. Details from an explosive forensic report into ESCOM revealed that Matela Gogo and his management team strong-armed Glencoe into selling the optimum coal mine business to Gupta-owned Tegeta Resources. Snehal Nagar of ESCOM's primary energy division said that ESCOM's payment system had to be manipulated in order to make an unlawful 600 million rand prepayment to Tegeta. I'm Naledi Ngobo in Johannesburg. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLab to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. The Congolese president, Dennis Sassou Nguesso, has called for stronger health systems, concrete action on counterfeit medicine and universal access to health care. He was speaking at the 69th session of the World Health Organization Regional Committee for Africa and Brazzaville, where health ministers for 47 countries uh, from Africa are meeting this week. The Congolese leader also drew attention to ongoing health development initiatives in his country. More from Dr. Francis Casolo, director in the World Health Organization Regional Office for Africa. The 69th Regional Committee, as with other regional committees, is really to bring together the ministers of health in the African region to come and look at the strategic and policy issues affecting health within our region. The ministers of health are then expected to advise their secretariat, which is the World Health Organization, on how they see that some of these strategic decisions and policies should be implemented by the organization. How far have African countries gone, doctor, in delivering essential health services at district level? As you know, this is one of the uh, critical priorities that our region has set. In fact, uh, our heads of state, in their last meeting in Niger, actually took a political decision to work at achieving universal health coverage under which district health services and other services fall. So part of this meeting will be to try and take stock on how far we've gone. On our part as the World Health Organization, we have over the last one year worked with close to 16 countries in our region to put in place policies as well as take decisions that will drive these countries towards improving their district health services, but also moving towards universal, attaining universal health coverage in our region. So, indeed, this region is trying to 
to focus on that, and we hope that this particular meeting will come out with additional information on how many countries have attained significant changes at the district level as part of universal health coverage. Now, you speak of some of the successes achieved over the years. Talk to us about the challenges faced by WHO as it supports countries to improve health and well-being across the continent. Overall, I think member states um, have been trying to improve their health services. But obviously, some of the key challenges remain. And these relate to what we call the um, weak health systems. Broadly put, these health systems include issues around the governance of the health system, in other words, how the health systems are set up. We still have countries that have strongly centralized health systems. While WHO is encouraging our member states to decentralize the health systems to as near to the community as possible through an approach called primary health care. So these systems are still a bit weak. Secondly, the funding for health remains a challenge. You may recall that a couple of years ago, the heads of states met in Abuja, Nigeria, and set themselves a target of providing 50% of their domestic budget towards health. Unfortunately, not many countries have reached that 15% funding. So we are working with the ministers of health to encourage them, as well as reaching out to the ministers of finance to ensure that this commitment that the health state made many years ago is achieved. The other area, of course, is around the availability of what you call the uh, medical products and the various technologies. Africa still lags behind in terms of health technologies, and again, we are encouraging member states to start reaching out to their multilateral and bilateral partners, including domestic resources, to try and develop this particular area. Finally, of course, we have challenges in availability of safe drugs. And uh, noting this, uh, the WHO working with the African Union has put in place what we are calling the Africa Medicines Agency. We hope that this agency will be able to guide the various member states in the registering of drugs, but also looking at the quality issues related to the drugs available. And are there plans to discuss how countries can better prepare for or respond to outbreaks such as Ebola? Yes, great. In fact, uh, we are having a side event specifically looking at uh, Ebola. The ministers will be discussing with our technicians on how best the African region can be better prepared. As you know, 41 of African countries have done what we call the joint evaluation to look at the uh, available capacities for response and as well as uh, preparedness. And uh, they will be discussing some of these issues to try and see how the gaps that have been identified can be strengthened. And that was Dr. Francis Casolo, Director in the World Health Organization Regional Office for Africa, talking to Elizabeth Ledicha. Turkey has taken 3.6 million Syrians since the war began, but now stands accused of deporting refugees back to Syria, violating humanitarian law. Syrians without Istanbul ID cards have until today to return to other parts of Turkey, but some say they're being relocated to war zones in Syria instead. The BBC's Mark Lowen reports from Istanbul. It's Friday prayer here in Fatih, an area of Istanbul that's become a hub for Syrians fleeing the war. Around me, virtually all the mosque-goers are Syrians. Restaurants and shops are also owned and staffed by them. 3.6 million have come to Turkey, hundreds of thousands living in Istanbul. But as Turkey's economy slumps, Turks' patience with Syrians is wearing thin. The government has been rounding up Syrians in Istanbul, officially returning them to other cities. But we've been told many of them have been forced to go back to Syria, an active war zone in breach of international law. In a cramped Istanbul flat, a Syrian father plays with the children he thought he'd never see again. Last month, he was deported to Idlib, where fighting is escalating. After staying for 10 days in Syria, he paid a smuggler $600 to get back to Istanbul to join his family. 
Now he lives in the shadows, we won't give his name, and he tells of being made to sign a voluntary return document to Syria, which he couldn't read. The police gave us a paper which we had to sign and stamp with our fingerprint, but they covered it with their hands and didn't tell us what we were signing. On the bus to the border, police beat up one person. You fled Syria to escape to Turkey. How do you feel now about the country that you say pushed you back to Syria? When I crossed into Syria and saw the Turkish flag behind me, I hated it because this is a racist nation and government. I saw that during my 12 days in prison. They have no respect for foreigners. Among the Syrians of Istanbul, fear is spreading. Noor has worked in the kitchen of a Syrian restaurant for three years, chopping up salads and hot chicken. Now he barely leaves the place. In this cupboard underneath the stairs of the restaurant, there's a single mattress where Noor sleeps every night. He lays it on the ground. He's laying it now on the ground. It's a tatty old single mattress and this is where he now sleeps. There is so much pressure and harassment towards us. We are afraid. We are not asking for aid. We don't want anything from the Turkish government. Just to let us work and live here. Hostility from Turks is growing, some attacking Syrian shops last month. Polls show since 2016, empathy for Syrians here has dropped from 70 to 40 percent. The government says it's relocating Syrians not registered in Istanbul or allowing them back to parts of Syria under the control of the Turkish army. We've never treated migrants who we catch as terrorists or criminals, said the interior minister Suleiman Soylu recently, calling them helpless people and refuting claims of forced deportation, though they keep on coming. And that report was by the BBC's Mark Lowen in Istanbul. World leaders and all parties to conflict must ensure that humanitarians are protected from harm as required under international law. That was the message of the United Nations Secretary General as the organization marked World Humanitarian Day yesterday. The UN has paid tribute to aid workers around the world who risk their own lives to help save and improve the lives of others. Sean Bryce Peace reports. In a statement, Antonio Guterres paid particular tribute to women humanitarians and the huge difference they make for millions of women, men and children in urgent need in hotspots around the globe. A message reiterated by his deputy, Amina Mohammed during the official observance in New York. Thanks to their efforts, millions of people have found protection from conflict and hope itself rekindled. Colleagues and friends, losing so many of our fellow staff members and personnel all over the world is a terrible blow to our mission. At the same time, I know that you will never lose faith in the role of the United Nations and that we will, each in our own way, remain determined to fulfill our responsibility to work for peace, development and human rights. Those who attack the United Nations want to make us afraid, feel weak and to retreat. Today, as we honour those who inspired us to be bold and determined to go forward. More than 4,500 aid workers have been killed, injured, detained, assaulted or kidnapped while doing their work, as the Assistant Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, Ursula Mueller, explained. As respect for the laws of war weaken around the world, aid workers are increasingly vulnerable when they are more needed than ever before. Last year was the worst for violent and violence against aid workers in five years, and the second worst on record overall. In 2018, there were 405 victims with, 30, with 131 killed, 144 wounded, and 130 kidnapped in 35 crisis-affected countries. So far in 2019, some 156 aid workers have been attacked on the job 
with 57 killed, 59 wounded and 40 kidnapped. World Humanitarian Day commemorated each year on August 19th, the same date in 2003 when the UN headquarters in Baghdad was targeted, killing 22 people including the organization's top representative to the country at that time. Over half a million professional humanitarian workers work every day to protect, save and improve the lives of tens of millions of vulnerable people. Today, on the 10th anniversary of World Humanitarian Day, we are paying special tribute to the women among them. Women make up 40% of the humanitarian workforce throughout the world. They are active in every aspect of humanitarian action, from negotiating access to people in need, to fighting deadly diseases such as measles and Ebola, from reuniting separated children with their families to ensuring people uprooted by natural disasters and conflict have shelter, access to clean water, health care, food and nutrition. Also worth noting is the breadth of need humanitarians try to reach with more than 70 million people forcibly displaced globally. Yemen, as an example, is currently the world's largest humanitarian crisis. Nearly 80%, that's 8-0, of the total population, or 24 million people, require some form of humanitarian assistance and protection. The World Food Programme tells us that in South Sudan, almost 7 million people or more than 60% of the entire population, do not know where their next meal will come from. And it's the humanitarian workers, the aid deliverers, health workers and first responders who are often the buffer between life and death. I'm Sherwin Bryce-Pease in New York. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. I, Nelson Hodesasap Mandela. And I solemnly and sincerely promise that we'll always promote all that will advance the Republic and oppose all that may harm it. And maintain the Constitution and all other law of the Republic. I, Matamera Siro Ramaphosa. 1732, let's cross it over to the news desk. Here's Shwadani with your latest news headlines. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, Burkina Faso's military says extremists have killed at least 10 soldiers in the country's north. Members of the former interim board at South Africa's public broadcaster will take the SIU report on the SABC security tender on review. And finally, Russia has told an international watchdog that a nuclear accident that happened earlier this month is none of its business. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Four friends in South Africa have committed to a grueling 2,000-kilometer endurance charity cycle tour to raise awareness for Alzheimer's, the most common cause of dementia. The team hopes to generate exposure and decrease the stigma around the mental condition while raising funds to train caregivers that can assist those in low-income communities that would otherwise be unable to access vital nursing care. They start their journey this Saturday at Baitbridge border in Limpopo province and uh, ending in Cape Town in September. For more on this initiative, here's one of the riders, Simon Clayton, a business development manager at Flight Center Business Travel. It was actually quite a funny story. I was just riding around the cradle and with a friend of mine, and we saw a gentleman on the side of the road who looked like he was battling quite a bit. And he had a puncher, and literally I just stopped, started chatting to him. And this was in August last year, and we became very close friends. And now we are, he just told me about his father and his story. And then I said, you know, my dad's also struggling with dementia. And he said, let's go and cycle across the country because his dad did it many years ago. And I said, I'm very keen to try and create more awareness around dementia in South Africa. 
Now, obviously, you have a personal story with dementia. Can, can you just share with us some of the experiences of having to take care of a person um, with this mental condition? It's very difficult, to be honest with you, as we've, I haven't really had enough support in terms of people communicating about this disease that my dad is struggling with. It's more about maybe we were feeling embarrassed, and I really wanted to get the word out there after meeting Lau and trying to tell my story. And in doing so, as you can see now, this has really developed into something that we, no one should be shy about to speak about. We need to start talking about this. We need to start helping each other, hearing other people's stories. So basically, in the, years, in the year, my whole life has changed from being secretive about my father to now encouraging others to talk about what's happening with dementia in South Africa. Now, the, the makeup of your team, have they also been touched by dementia? And, uh, you know, there isn't much information about dementia and people don't really know about it. It's just uh, described as a mental condition without really going into detail. You yes, have experience I, of it. Um, the people that makes up your team that is going to be cycling with you, what are their experiences? I'm sure you've been sharing stories with regards to yes. how you've been dealing with it and how it's helped in some areas and not been so great in certain areas. Yeah, that's correct. So I'll just give you a quick background. So Lyle and Stu and those, the brothers, their dad passed away a year ago from dementia. And then and our other mate Gareth, he's also, he's come on the ride. He actually hasn't got any direct effect with dementia, but he's great mates with Struan, and he just wants to be involved in this awesome adventure. And then we have Elizabeth. She does the operation, and she, her dad is currently suffering from dementia, which is also very tough for her, and so she's come on board. And then Bronwyn, which is Struan's wife, she's also assisting with the marketing side of things. Now, in terms of this uh, initiative, what are you hoping to achieve? Obviously, on a personal level, it will be a great achievement. But um, just to put it out there and for people to know more about dementia, is this what you're hoping to achieve? Is this the goal? So the basic goal from, from our side is we are driving across the country and going to different areas where people aren't, who are suffering from dementia. So in rural areas, we've got townships, we've got people who don't understand what is happening to their loved ones. And we find that um, in these areas, you know, some people are being subject to uh, being mismanaged, they're being maybe abused, and we want to change this. We want to uh, train caregivers, which cost 2,000, 5,000 rand throughout Summer's essay. We want to deploy them into these areas, educate the community, and really try and slow down and stop what is happening to the elderly people in these areas. And are you considering making this initiative an annual cycle tour? I think that would be the plan, and I'll be honest with you, it's probably, this is probably the hardest thing, you know, bringing about eight of us together and trying to do something like this, and it's, you know, we've got our own jobs, we've got our own families to look after, but I mean, we are so passionate and proud of it, even with all our internal dramas that we go through, we are going to achieve something amazing when we finish this ride, and then definitely we want to sit down, we want to see who would be interested to follow this route, who would like to, you know, get involved year on year, so it's definitely in the pipeline. Now, tell us about this ride. It sounds exciting in the same breath. It sounds very daunting. Tell us exactly um, where you're going to be stopping and uh, how often you're going to be making stops and, you know, the, as you say, stopping in rural areas and, and just uh, imparting the knowledge and uh, um, what you have experienced so far. But just tell us about the ride in particular. So, as you mentioned earlier, we're going to get to Baybridge. Actually, we're getting there on Friday and then we start riding on Saturday morning. We're riding approximately 160 k's a day, and we're trying to average about 25 kilometers an hour. So we're not treating this as a race in any sort. We literally just want to get to each destination comfortably. And um, Stuart's actually the head of um, where we're stopping in, in different parts of the country. So every about an hour and a half, two hours, um, we're going to be stopping, you know, grabbing some food, uh, rehydrating, and then finishing in Cape Town. So basically, we are just going to be riding across the country and trying to get involved with the communities, go to different outcomes, essays, and then having discussions, getting to know how everything is working from our side. We do have a documentary filmmaker on board with us who will be videoing us throughout this whole adventure, which will be 15 days in total. Lillian, just one thing, quickly, yes. if you don't mind, I just want to give a big thank you to Liverpool Villages, who are our title sponsors. And then if anyone is interested to get involved with us, we have a backer buddy page, which is called Border to Beach number two beach mm -hmm. and everyone can follow us on instagram and facebook
That was Simon Clayton, a business development manager at Flight Center Business Travel. He was on the line talking to Lulu Gabu. Dairy farmers around the world are at the mercy of climate change and trade wars and volatile milk prices as it's taking its toll. Like in the rest of the world, American dairy farmers are struggling to survive. Last year, nearly 3,000 dairy farms closed in the U.S. and that number continues to grow every single day. From the state of Wisconsin, the BBC's Angelica Casa reports on the dairy farming crisis in America. My life pretty much revolved around the farm, I guess. It's always been important to me and it's what I've always wanted to do. I guess I've always wanted to farm. Kind of the last couple of years, I kind of hoped maybe, you know, just things would get better, but they really haven't. American dairy farmers like Noah Volker are in crisis. They say get bigger, get out, and I, I didn't really foresee, you know, wanting, I don't want to get bigger just to make a go of it. So my decision I came up with was just to get out of it. The Volker family have just loaded up the last of their cows for auction. After 79 years, they're shutting down their dairy farm. And they're not alone. Nearly 700 dairy farms in Wisconsin have closed in the last year. There's been a shift towards larger farms, you know, but I always figured they'd be kind of a place for the smaller farms up until maybe three years ago or so. America's dairy land in crisis. More and more Wisconsin dairy farmers are going out of business. Tonight, fear from dairy farmers struggling to make ends meet. It is definitely not an exaggeration to say that dairy farmers are in crisis right now. Farm aide's Jennifer Fahey says there isn't an agricultural sector under more strain than dairy. Over the past five years, dairy farmers have seen their income plummet by about 50%. We have not seen a prolonged downturn like this in a long time, and it's bleeding our country dry of dairy farmers. A few years ago, farmers were earning around 20 U.S. dollars for every 100 pounds of milk they produced. Now, they make about 16. Milk prices have been below average for years. That's not the only reason family-owned dairy farms are closing. One of the problems we have in the dairy industry is with consolidation, and that's what's happening right now with these low milk prices, where small and mid-sized farmers are being pushed out of business and the greater share of production is being taken on by larger and larger farms. Big corporations and grocery chains are making moves to create their own supply of food. Last year we saw Walmart announce that they would be cutting the contract with their processor and opening their own processing facility. The decision allows Walmart to control every aspect of milk production. It's great for Walmart and other corporations doing the same but it also means many of the farmers and dairy processors that once sold to the grocery giant no longer have contracts. We've been ingrained to believe that milk should be cheap, which makes it really difficult to motivate people to say, hey, farmers aren't earning a fair price, let's fight for this. And it's difficult for policymakers and politicians to stand up and say, milk should be more expensive. This is a huge challenge. That challenge is playing out in Wisconsin, home to one-fourth of all U.S. dairy farms. The majority, like Noah's, are family-operated. It was a nice way to grow up. You know, we worked with our family, worked alongside each other in the family, you know. And the cows are part of the family. Each one of the cows have their own personality. Some are hyper, some are really gentle, some won't leave you alone, they'll lick you to death and you can't get away from them. I mean, there's just, yeah, it's kind of neat. That's one part I'm going to miss about it is, you know, just kind of each cow's personality. Like Noah, many farmers across the U.S. are opting out of the industry. Jennifer believes this trend is having a huge ripple effect across rural communities. A lot of us might be lucky to feel that our job is more than just a job and it's part of our identity. But for farmers, many of whom have had that farm passed down for generations, it's, a, it's an identity, it's a legacy, and that pressure of possibly being the generation to lose it all is so immense, most of us can't imagine it. But for Noah, that is now his reality. For me, I don't know how, how it's going to be for me. You know, it's going to be all I've ever done. I've always gotten up early, done chores, you know, no matter what. <laughs> when I was growing up, I've never really been off the farm, I guess, so... It'll be different, that's for sure. And that report was by Angelica Casa in Wisconsin.
The time is 17.44 Central African time. Let's cross on over to the money desk. Here's Tracy Boomgaard with your latest economics news. Thank you, Samora. 35% of Kenyans do not save in banks due to lack of finances. This was revealed in a financial sector deepening survey. The report comes on the backdrop of a decline in traditional accounts and an increased usage of mobile banking accounts. Of the reasons surveyed for the non-use of a bank account, the top three reasons were the lack of money to save, inability to maintain an account and irregular income. Growth in mobile banking account usage is mainly driven by young people below the age of 35 years. The Namibian Broadcasting Corporation has revealed that they will have to depend solely on the government to settle outstanding liabilities amounting to over $19 million. This is for its employees' post-retirement medical aid benefits and statutory severance pay. Budget cuts at the state broadcaster has also added to its words. Employee benefits as well as medical aid and pension obligations were eased by government in October last year after its employees went on a week-long strike demanding for their benefits to be paid. The South African Reserve Bank's composite leading business cycle indicator fell by 0.4% month-on-month in June, The largest negative contributions came from a deceleration in job advertisement space as well as a decrease of approved residential building plans. The indicator provides investors with some sense on the direction of economic growth in the near term. Economist Jeff Schultz says the latest indicators don't bode well for economic growth. Uh, the performance of the leading economic indicator has been very disappointing over the last couple of months and I think indicative of Uh, still very weak levels of domestic confidence, uh, weak levels of domestic economic activity. uh, And unfortunately, a lot of this stems uh, from a lack of policy coherence and policy certainty uh, that this economy continues to face. And so unfortunately, uh, the outlook for GDP growth both this year and next year um, is certainly not looking particularly good. Seychelles and the European Union have begun the first round of negotiations for a new Sustainable Fisheries Partnership Agreement and Protocol. The Sustainable Fisheries Partnership Agreement is a long-standing cooperation agreement between Seychelles and the EU, which enables EU vessels to fish in the waters under the jurisdiction of Seychelles. Fisheries is the second top contributor to the island nation. Britain has expressed concern over reports that a member of staff from its consulate in Hong Kong has been detained while returning from mainland China. Local media say Trade and Investment Officer Simon Cheng had attended a business event in Chen Yang earlier this month. The U.S. dollar is trading at 363.28 Nigerian Naira, 10.89 Botswana Pula, at 102.07 Kenyan shilling and at 13.07 Zambian kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you four Brazilian hail, 66.48 Russian ruble, 71.15 Indian rupee, 7.04 Chinese yuan, and at 15.26 South African rand. The US dollar is also trading at 82 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,501 and platinum at $841 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $59.08 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. And now it's time for us to cross on over to the world of sport. Here's Neto Chimani with the latest.
Samara. Good afternoon, sport fans. Starting off with football news. South Africa are among the 10 countries which will be bidding to host the Women's FIFA World Cup in 2023. Belgium has become the latest country to express an interest in hosting an expanded Women's World Cup in 2023. World Football's governing body, FIFA, announced late last month that following the success of this year's 24-team tournament in France and in order to foster the growth of women's football, the next World Cup in 2023 would be expanded to feature 32 teams. The 10-member associations MA who have expressed interest in hosting the event are Argentina, Belgium, Bolivia, Brazil, Colombia, Japan, Korea expressing interest in a joint bid with TPR Korea Football Association, New Zealand and South Africa. They each have until the 2nd of September to confirm their participation and must then submit their bids by December the 13th. The winning bid will be announced in May next year. On to cricket news. South Africa under-19 captain Bryce Parsons is releasing playing a World Cup on home soil next year. The country will stage the age-level tournament from January the 17th to February the 9th. The first time the same global cricket tournament will take place on these shores in 22 years. The last time South Africa hosted the event was in 1998, before Parsons was even born. But the young Gauteng all-rounder knows all about playing with home support behind you he is looking forward to the event in six months time yeah of course playing a world cup in your in your own backyard is it's always going to be nice having friends and family come and support so you got a lot of a lot of expectations on your shoulders having the world cup at home so i think there's going to be added pressure but i also think the team's ready for that so it's a big positive it's in it is in south africa used to the conditions and hopefully the other teams struggle to to adapt quick enough Unlike at senior le- international level where South Africa have never won a World Cup, the juniors did so as recently as 2014 when they claimed the title at a tournament held in the United Arab Emirates. Current Protea Aidan Makram was the captain of a team that also included stars Kahiso Rabada and Andy Lepetlukwayo. Parsons will be hoping to emulate that generation of players and spoke about some of the plans in place building up to the tournament. We've got four games now against the semi-pro setups in beginning of September to the end of October. So we've got a few games there, and then we've got a we've got Coke Week, of course, and then we've got a five-match series against India before the for the World Cup. So there's a lot of lot of cricket to be played by us. We we as a team we are very positive. There's been good signs. So hopefully, we, and we've got a two-week camp. So we've got lots of work to do. We know we've got a lot of work to do, but our morals are high. We know we can achieve what we want to achieve in the World Cup. So everything's looking positive. Um, we got, yeah, like I said, we've got a lot of cricket to come, so we're all ready. Cricket South Africa CSA also recently announced two youth one-day international ODI series had been penned in against India, Zimbabwe and New Zealand between the 26th of December and the 9th of January 2020 to help Lawrence Mahatlani's charges fine-tune their preparations for the World Cup. However, they have plenty of hard work to do, considering the same side were recently thumbed 7-0 on home soil by Pakistan, a result that followed defeat to India in the subcontinent. Parsons admits that they were below par in those matches. We have played probably the two best under-19 sides in the world at the moment. All the subcontinent teams are really good at under-19 level. So it's been a good experience playing against the top teams. So I think the series, these two series have put us in good stead leading into the World Cup. We've learned a lot growing as a team. And the signs are looking bright, like I said. Um, as a team, we've got good coaching staff. We, we're learning and growing as a unit and as coaching staff of what the players are good at, what e- each individual player, where they perform best in roles. So everything's just preparation for the World Cup. So at the moment, we're all still positive, despite the results that have taken place in the last tours. And finally, in golf news. Eduardo Molinari identifying slow players on Twitter led to the European Tours measures to speed up play, says its chief executive, Keith Pillay. On Monday, a four-point plan was announced that includes giving players an immediate one-stroke penalty if they incur two bad times in a, road, in a round. 
They will also be increased to fines for those who consistently fall behind. Pile said the ex-Ryder Cup player was entirely right to confront an issue that is golf's biggest talking point. In April, the Italian tweeted a list of players who had been timed showing the number of breaches they had committed and the total of fines handed out. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Ito Chemani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. We're back again at 1900 hours Central African time. For comments on the show, you can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. You can also tweet us at Channel Africa One. Taking us to the top of the hour is Sondela by Trezor featuring Msaki. We'll see you again later.